Okie dokie. The scriptures today, we're going to start off with Genesis, and that's 17, 15 through 21. Um, and God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, or Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and I will moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you as this time next year. And then the next one is Matthew 1, verse 1 through 2. And that's the book of genealogy of Christ, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Good to go, James? Good, good. Now, I try to do everything the same as Lee, except I haven't got the green bottle. <laughs> and uh, unlike uh, Lee, I'm not exactly a raconteur, um, so I, I do need to look at my notes, so that's okay. Uh, let me just pray, uh, because I'm going to open the Word of God, and that's always a challenge. <coughs> Uh, our Father and our God, uh, you are the one through your spirit that caused the Bible to be written for our learning. Uh, you are the one that has um, called uh, people to yourself from the time of Abraham right down to 2019 here on the edge of the Indian Ocean. We pray, we pray that you would help us to understand the big story, the wonder of your plan, the strength of your character and uh, like that last um, song reminded us, this is not the end, give us strength to hold on for we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. The Bible is a grand story. Uh, that's simple English for those of you who have been to uh, university uh, know that the, one of the buzzwords is meta-narrative. Well, I'm just using the word a grand story. Unlike other religious literature, it is not a book of philosophy or meditations uh, of an individual 
or even just revelation by one individual. It tells a grand story from the opening book of Genesis to the closing book of uh, Revelation. Now, our Bibles do help us by uh, chopping it up like a loaf of bread into 66 different slices or bits or books. But chopping it up into slices doesn't help you see the grand story from beginning to end. Uh, if anything, it helps us chop it up even further into blessed promises and favourite verses and favourite stories and we don't see how they all come together and the big story is meant to shape us because it replaces all our individual little stories. Today I just want to focus on an episode in the life of the third most influential or important man in the Bible. I'm prepared to go out on a limb and say, obviously, Jesus is number one. Surprisingly, I think Adam is number two. And coming a close third is this man called Abraham or Abram. What I'm going to do is, I'm not seeking your permission, I'm telling you, what I'm going to do is parachute you in to chapter 17 in Genesis. So if you've got a Bible, it's exactly as it was read for us and I'm, I'm defining the drop zone of the parachute even more narrowly. You understand what a drop zone is? It's where they try and get the parachute to land the drop zone is even more narrow. It's in the second half of what God says to Abraham, beginning at, I think it's about verse 17, isn't it? Yeah, something like that. Abraham is, at this point of time, middle-aged. If you believe the numbers in the Bible, um, and I do, uh, he's nudging a hundred, um, he's got 75 to go. Uh, the last 75 might have been the hardest, but he doesn't make a comment about that. Just as importantly as his age is the fact that he has been tracking with God, or God has been tracking with him, is probably more correct, for 25 years or thereabouts, maybe a bit longer, at this point of time. By our standards, that's a generation that God has been patiently walking with Abraham and Abraham has been stumbling along. Another way of describing that is to say that for a generation, 25 years, Abraham to varying degrees, give or take a bit, has been taking God at his word. Taking God at his word is my way of describing what in other places the Bible calls faith. However, I'm only too aware that faith has suffered reduction in its meaning, so I prefer that lengthened description of Abraham taking God at his word despite the circumstances and despite the situation. 
it's very important to understand that this is what we would call today a long-term relationship between God and Abraham, despite Abraham doing what I call some dodgy things over the course of the years. If you're not sure what dodgy means, well, not the sort of people, not the sort of things that um, people who are characterised by faith would do. For instance, 13 years before this, he'd become very impatient with God's timeline. And he gave himself a son through a female servant of his chronically barren wife, which in our reading she's called Sarai. He gets to change the name to Sarah, which means princess. Now that's another story for another day. All you need to know is that 13 years ago, Abraham took matters into his own hand. God didn't turn him into charcoal, but let things uh, unfold. And at this particular point, the son of that relationship with his wife's servant is 12, 13, which means in a Jewish context that he's transitioning from puberty to adulthood. Sorry, guys, there were no teenagers in those days, so there was no slack. You went from child to adult, child to being capable of being married or being given in marriage. That's Ishmael's age at this point in the story. I think, okay, I think, just underline the word, that Abraham is poised to make the son he idolises, little idol, but nonetheless idolises, into his heir, H-E-I-R. And God takes that moment to appear somehow in person to Abraham yet again and further enhance his plan through successive moments in Abraham's life. This is one of those moments. The relationship God has with Abraham becomes even deeper because God shows Abraham the shape of things to come. Uh, to come. God chooses this moment when Abraham is seeing a son turn from child to adult and I think probably pins all his hopes, hence my description that he actually idolises this child, pins all his hopes on Ishmael, God appears and we parachute into the middle of the story. God tells a hundred-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife that they will have a male child in about one year. And from this male child will come nations and leaders and I think Abraham hears 
the serpent crusher as well. Uh, you need to know something about your Bible to support that image of serpent crusher. If I say it in an expansive way, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. They didn't have Bibles in those days and I can ask Steve up the back but I sort of doubt <laughs> whether there was any written texts for Abraham but I'm sure as Abraham grew up he heard the story again and again of Adam and Eve and the seed that would crush the head of the serpent which is described as offspring or seed. So Abraham hears these words, a revelation from God. Remember, he's a hundred years old. <laughs> Abraham knows enough about the birds and the bees and how babies are made to laugh at God laugh at what he says. I can sympathise with Abraham. Uh, gynaecology tells us that a female is, I believe, a female is born with all the eggs that she will ever have. I don't think Abraham knew all about eggs, but he didn't know Sarah, his wife, and knew that she was long past conceiving a child. as fewer words as possible for you. When Abraham looked at Sarah, he thought, all the eggs are gone. How, then, will Abraham and Sarah have a son? Without an egg, and just possibly without sperm, God has to create a child out of nothing. So Abraham laughs because out of nothing children are not in his experience. And Abraham makes a counter offer. <laughs> Abraham had invested all his hopes in Ishmael who wasn't from Sarah but from a slave. What about Ishmael? Let's not have this out-of-nothing child stuff. It's ridiculous. Laugh, laugh, laugh. And God's abrupt response is even threatening. He says simply to Abraham, what is it about those two letters, N and O, that you do not understand? Despite your best efforts, Abraham, you and your wife will be cradling an infant son in a year's time. And you won't go through the list of names, fancy names out of the book of children's names, because you will never ever forget this moment. His name will be, from the day he's born until the day he dies, Isaac, which will remind you of your laughter before me. Isaac just simply means laughter. You laughed at me and I, because of the relationship, let you get away with it. 
at this moment, despite his age and Sarah's barrenness, Abraham takes God at his word. But God's not finished revealing what he is doing. He goes on to say that the son he will create out of nothing will also be in relationship with God. And the shape of things to come means that the serpent crusher, the seed of the woman, which he promised to Adam and Eve, will sometime, somehow, come through the descendants of Isaac. Where did I get that idea from? Well, there are three words in what God says that are all important. My covenant, an everlasting covenant, and that word that I've mentioned before, offspring. Same word for seed. Now, I suspect that many of you have never appreciated that word covenant and its implications for the grand story of the Bible. If you can accept that God's covenant is his commitment sometime, somehow, to restore some members of humanity into an Abraham-like relationship with himself and in the process to recreate the world without death, pain, frustration and alienation. Now that might all be too much for a Sunday morning if you've never really understood Abraham's story. I'm going to move from Genesis chapter 17 and take you on a, what will I call it, a drone flight, a, an overview over some other parts of the Bible. We're going forward in time. It's only a short story, but it's a short story through the grand story of the Bible with just a couple of stopovers or layovers. The first place I want to make a stopover is the very first verse of the New Testament. It was read for us. That first verse simply says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of Isaac, or laughter. Whatever view you take of Jesus, one of the primary documents of the Christian faith makes the connection to Abraham and the revelation that he received in Genesis 17 in its opening words. Without saying it in specific words, you are being told, like the children's activity book, to join the dots. Jesus is a stage in the fulfilment of the everlasting covenant. The special son that Abraham was promised through Isaac. The serpent crushing seed of the woman. Now there are a huge number of pages. I didn't count them in my Bible between Genesis 17 and the beginning of the New Testament. And yet only two characters are mentioned here in this first verse, or three, 
Jesus, David, and another jump further back, Abraham. You may never have thought of about it, but those intervening pages between Genesis 17 and the very first page of the New Testament are really what I'll choose to call the unfolding of the covenant God made with Abraham and King David is included that. The covenant idea gives shape and support to the whole of the Old Testament and, surprisingly, to the whole of the New Testament as well. Our second stopover, and uh, I'm sorry you didn't get it included in your, um, in your booklet, is the book of Romans, chapter 4, verses 19 to 21. It's a complex argument. You don't have to look at it unless you want to. Just listen. Paul, in the midst of writing to a church in the centre of the then-known world, harks back to Abraham's life, harks back to the moment when he heard the promise of a miracle child. Paul writes about Abraham that he did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead (coughs) since he was about 100 years old, all when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Paul goes on, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise or covenant of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So the New Testament man that many people in uh, evangelical and Christian churches focus on has been reading the story of Abraham and he knows very particularly the story in Genesis chapter 17. And says that Abraham was looking for a miracle child because after 25 years he could rely on God to do what he had said. And there's an application for all of us, you and I here this morning, because Paul doesn't just do a flashback. He actually says that in a way All of us, you and I, are in a similar situation to Abraham, only separated by time. Like Abraham had to take God at his word that he could make a child out of nothing, so you and I, even in 2019, have to take God at his word when he remade or recreated Jesus through resurrection. That's what Paul goes on to say. Every one of us knows that the dead are dead and do not come back to life. Nothing is more certain. Yet at the very heart of real faith in 2019 is the beyond belief resurrection of Jesus and the promise of God, the continuing unfolding of the covenant that it re- uh, expects a resurrection, a making out of nothing new people, 
some to life with God and some to life apart from God. That's at the very heart of our faith. Can God and Jesus do that? Real Christian faith turns on whether God has the power to first recreate a dead Jesus and then somehow, sometime, recreate us. Abraham had that mind-blowing challenge from God in his day that he and his wife, who were long past having children, the eggs were gone, God said, I'm going to make a miracle child. You and I have a similar challenge today. Sometime, somehow, God will remake everyone and this world. But I need to move on. Our last stopover is Revelation 21, almost the last chapter of the Bible. In the unrepeatable scene in that chapter, the Apostle John hears an announcement about God. The announcement is, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's verse 3 if some of you are taking notes. What has all that got to do with Abraham? Well, I parachuted you into the middle of Genesis chapter 17. But at the very beginning, when God first appears to Abraham, God describes his covenant with Abraham as... I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout all their generations for an everlasting covenant. Here's the key words. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. Those words at the end of the book of the Bible shows that the story is still continuing, the story that's undergirded by the covenant It's coming to its richness and its fullness. Let me wrap up. How can I help you understand this idea of covenant? Well, one illustration might help. (laughs) I've watched my son-in-law, Jono, fillet fish. What the filleting of a fish reveals is a fine skeleton that gives both shape and support to the fish. It's the same for any animal, including you. Your skeleton gives both shape and support. It might be helpful for you to think that God's commitment to restore the world by recreating it and its inhabitants which can be described in one word, covenant, is like the skeleton of the Bible. Now, covenant's not exhaustive, but it does say a lot about God's plan. If you fillet the Bible at almost any place, I'm fairly confident of that, if you fillet the Bible at almost any place, you will expose the skeleton. 
and the skeleton will be a covenant skeleton that ties the grand story of the Bible together from the beginning to the end. That little word covenant is only occurs occasionally but there are lots of places where it lies underneath or within supporting both the shape and the structure of the large story. You can't do without that idea because if you do you won't see the big picture, the grand story from beginning to end. What do I do? Pray? Oh, good. <laughs> Lord, we have a remarkable book. It's not legislation. It's not uh, uh, telling us how to be good because it's good to be good, but it tells a grand story and it invites us through faith in Jesus Christ to make that our story, even though uh, we may come from a, a tragic, dysfunctional um, backgrounds. We're invited by you to walk by faith like Abraham, uh, come into a relationship with you uh, when uh, despite the dodgy things we might do, you patiently persevere with us. Give us hearts that understand that excitement when we begin to understand uh, that you are a covenant-keeping God and be patient with us for we plead it in Jesus' name. Amen.